This is The Cable. How much retail ownership is in stock? Tech story is front and centre. What will this wind up doing to the cost curve? Your connection from the London market close to the US market action. A significant sell-off in European assets. It feels like a lot of these stocks have already priced that in. This is a stock that is increasingly being shorted. The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele. Behavioural challenges from the pandemic could linger for years on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. Tuesday, September the 13th. I'm Guy Johnson in London. Alex Steele's over in New York. You're now listening to The Cable. There's a bunch of stories that are are important today, but there's one that is moving the markets, Alex, uh, and that is the CPI print we got out of the United States today. Uh, The inflation number hotter than anticipated. Out of interest, we get inflation out of the UK tomorrow. It's also expected to be hotter than anticipated, um, but probably won't have quite the same effect. The core number in particular was where the real damage was done, 0.6 on a month-on-month basis. The estimate was 0.3. The market has not taken it well. Uh, yeah, to say lightly. Um, I should also point out that the positioning going into today was drastically different. We saw $2.6 billion of inflows going into the triple Qs. It's the tech uh, ETF, right? That was yesterday. Then you get this print. You're going to have a washout. You had a lot of call buying going into the S&P. Now, granted, if you had a long exposure call, maybe you're still okay. But there was a lot of positioning into market upside. And the question yesterday after the close was, oh, are we in FOMO? Do we have fear of missing out? Radically changed today. Absolutely. So let's just put some numbers on that. The NASDAQ tech heavy index is down by 4.1% today on reasonable volume. The volume's not great, but it's reasonable. I have to say, though, to Alex's point about positioning, over the last five days, it is still up by nearly 2%. So even after a 4% move to the downside, it is nearly up by 2% over the last five days. The S&P is is down today by 3%. It is up by nearly 2% over the last five days. The FTSE 100, European markets generally didn't get us hit hard today. Uh, The FTSE 100 down today by 1.2% over the last five days, up by 1.2%. So to your point, this is a radical unwind that we're seeing Mm -hmm. uh, of that move over the last few days. Uh, That call buying story, the FOMO story, I think is absolutely spot on. A lot of people had fear of missing out. They rolled the dice. Mm Mm-hmm. The dice came up snake eyes. And, and, you know, the question we were asking before was, oh, are we in a, uh, a totally different trend now? We're past the 50 and 100 day moving average for the S&P. Is this a sustained rally here um, versus now? I think the question is, oh, was that just an oversold bounce and sort of uh, upward rally within still a bear market? Yeah. We're going to kick this around. We're going to try and figure this out throughout the rest of the show. Good chat. Good good way to start the show. Let's get some headlines down. Here's Charlie Pellett. Hi. Thank you very much, Guy Johnson. Here's what's going on. Two of Britain's largest ports are bracing for overlapping dock worker walkouts in coming weeks, threatening more disruption to the nation's trade flows in a dispute over pay. A previously announced two-week strike at the Port of Liverpool will start September 20th after engineering and port operatives rejected the latest offer from Peel Ports at a meeting last night. And in a separate ballot, workers at Felixstowe voted against a wage increase to be imposed by the UK arm of CK Hutchinson Holdings, setting the stage for a new round of industrial action at Britain's busiest container port. Meanwhile, BBC is reporting that the Unite Union has called off action planned for September 16th and 20th against Arriva Bus Company. Rail unions are separately poised to revive stoppages on hold since the country began a period of mourning following the 
death of Queen Elizabeth with details likely to be announced next week after her funeral. And if you are looking to book a hotel room in London ahead of the state funeral, get ready to pay up. The average price for a London hotel room this weekend is 30% higher than it was for the same weekend in 2019 and 39% higher than it was last year while travel was still depressed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. This according to data from travel website Travago shared with Bloomberg. Searches have doubled since compared to the same period in 2019. That is the latest from the news desk. Guy Johnson, back to you now in London. I stayed in a hotel the other night. It was fairly pricey. So I'm just going to add that to the evidence that Charlie has just brought us. Charlie, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. Inflation certainly does seem to be the theme du jour, that inflation print out of the United States, rocking markets. As I say, we're going to get another inflation print out of the UK tomorrow. But let's focus on the states today. This is how some of our guests reacted to that hot number. The core print for today was not fantastic. I think markets are overreacting to this. Inflation is slowing down. The cooling trend is there. But not at the pace that the Fed is comfortable with. The Fed isn't going to blink. The Fed will now have more of reason to go 75 basis points uh, next week, and I think that's what they'll do. That number is going up, of course, for the, with the November expectations rising as well. Maybe 50 basis points. 75 um, is certainly right. going to be on the table there in November. There clearly isn't going to be a pivot anytime soon. The market's continuing to predict that pretty quickly the Fed does a pivot and starts to cut in the second half of next year. I think that needs to come off the table. If today's data is any indication, they would probably hurry it up. It puts the Fed into overdrive. And if they're in overdrive, sooner or later, they're going to make a policy mistake. All right, joining us now. First of all, that was a great collection of guests, really leading the narrative from this hot number to then what the Fed's going to do next week. Joining us now in the studio is Michael McKee, international economics and policy uh, correspondent. You need your headphones? No. You don't? I can't hear you. No, me, but can you hear a guy? I, I can, can you hear, hear me? And can you hear a guy? Yes. I have radar Excellent. in my head. Wow, that's... <laughs> This is Mike and I upsetting. have a very special. I don't know special... how this is working right now. <laughs> we have a very special connection. With oh, you. okay. He plugged in his IFB. I get it now. <laughs> Girls go. on top of it. All okay. Right. Um, so, it, it, is the narrative? Does the Fed go 100 next week? Is the narrative how many more times do they go 75 bips, or is the narrative how much more do they have to hike in 2023? Uh, well, I was going to say, I thought you were going to say 2022, because I think the point at, at at this point, and we'll have to wait for the next couple of months to see how it all shakes out. But the, the real question is, where do they stop? What number do they think? What level of interest rates do they think they need to get to to bring inflation solidly down? Now, inflation on the headline level came down because of energy prices, which have driven a lot of this. But the core is still seeing not continuous rises in everything, but different things each month start to pop up higher and higher. Yeah. And then we've got some potential bad news on the horizon with the idea of a railroad strike and a port mm -hmm. strike and the drought is hitting the rest of the world. And let's not forget about Ukraine, war, energy. Uh, so do they need to go over four? How far do they need to go? Then you ask how quickly they need to get there. I think... Based on the way this Fed is thinking uh, about risk management, that they wouldn't go 100 at a meeting. Uh, it would seem like they were panicking that uh, they may have lost control of it. And over a three-tenths uh, worse, I'm not sure that's uh, what, they, what they would be thinking going into this meeting. Mike, how does a 75 basis point hike today with current debt levels 
compared to a 75 basis point hike or 100 basis point hike in the 70s? Well, we're obviously going to have to pay more in terms of interest in the sense that um, we have a bigger national debt. However, most of that debt is at very, very low interest rates, particularly compared to the 1970s. I haven't done the math. Somebody raised this question a while ago. I haven't done the math. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if it's still significantly cheaper, even with a, a larger debt on but, a year-over-year basis, because the interest rate differential is lower. But, but if people have geared up more, presumably, if you've got a bigger debt pile, a... Even a even the the same interest rate increase will create a bigger effect in the amount of money you've got to pay. So I would have thought that you would see an exaggeration with a high, significantly higher debt level, and debt has blown up in corporate, personal, and government balance sheets since the last big inflation scare. You, you were earlier comparing the the, the number of seventy five. 100 basis point hikes we've ever had in history, and there haven't been many. So I'm wondering if these, these ones have a bigger effect because of the higher debt level will create a, a, a much bigger effect in the amount of money you pay. If you're going from 1% to 1% to 2%, that is very different from going from 5 to 6%. That is, that is true, but we're not at 5 or 6% yet. No, we're not. So but, we'll uh, see. But I, uh, I mean, and, and it's a great question, uh, and I don't have a great answer for you. I know that uh, when the Fed looks at this, uh, they have looked at the um, debt-to-income uh, ratios of corporations and citizens, and they don't seem worried at all. They're still uh, very low by historical standards. So yes, while debt's gone up, uh, cash on the balance sheet in the savings account under the mattress has also gone up. And so at okay. this point, it appears people can pay their way through this. On the flip side, checking accounts can pay you more. I'm just saying. Um, yeah, and you know that's an interesting uh, point because one of the things that has not happened is banks raising deposit. That's changing. Uh, uh, numbers, uh, 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 interest rates, um, and we haven't seen a big switch out of money markets yet into banks because the money markets are still trying to uh, outdo. The banks and the banks aren't uh, making it any easier. Can I go nerdy into the inflation? No, it's not that nerdy. Um, we mentioned sort when of. When has it ever stopped you before? It, no, not at all. Um, when talking about sort of what kind of hikes will make a difference in the inflation numbers, w- w- I'm trying to understand how much the Fed can actually tampen down inflation. And just taking a look at like shelter and medical care, those are two things that are still skyrocketing higher in the core. The Fed can't do anything about that. Fed can't do anything about that, but taking those one at a time. Medical should start to come down because of the uh, Medicare uh, legislation and drug pricing legislation that was passed. Mm -hmm. And housing is going to start to come down. We've already seen home prices start to fall. The problem is it takes a very long time for both of those things to be reflected in uh, data like the CPI. Uh, there are some housing experts who say you really won't see an impact for nine months to a year. And so, yes, the Fed can bring down shelter prices because they've sort of killed off the housing market, but it is still going to be reflected in the CPI for a while. Now, they'll know that. They'll have a better idea of what the level of economic activity that contributes to inflation uh, problems is, but it's still going to be a while before that comes off. Mike, I still hear 
so many people in the market talking about the fact that they still believe that the Fed ultimately, because of the data, will be forced to pivot earlier. Is how how is how are the Fed members thinking about this? Do they need that kind of belief to disappear before they they think that their job is going to be done? Only to the extent that that kind of belief shows up in inflation expectations, which it it's not right now. It's not going one way or the other. They're holding fairly steady at a reasonable rate. So the Fed doesn't see a lot of angst uh, getting into uh, the markets at this point. Uh, sure, there are forecasts for a recession, but the Fed at this point feels like that's a lesser danger than what they're facing from inflation. And so they'll they'll take their chances because a lot of the data that we've seen lately have argued in the other direction, mm -hmm. like jobs. So uh, they're not not particularly worried about it. There is this interesting idea that real rates, real 10-year rates go to 1%. And that was when the Fed had to backtrack in 2018. But uh, it's not similar today. The Fed isn't concerned about that. The balance sheet is much bigger. We are not at a point where there's a shortage of reserves. And so uh, as long as the markets are functioning, the Fed is fine. Mm -hmm. Here's what I'm wondering. How much of the inflation that we saw today is actually demand-driven, in that retailers, for example, they're able to raise prices? That, 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 that seems to imply that the supply shock yeah. that we had is somewhat resolved, and that this is truly a demand story. We have seen measures of the supply chain problems starting to ease significantly. But and let's be clear, I'm talking my own book, because I'm yeah. waiting for the 80% sales. I'm not getting them. It's getting me quite upset. And you know, I noticed that today, because apparel did not go down. It went up oh, two-tenths of a percent. And that's not what people have been expecting because retailer inventories have been very high. And the only thing I can tell you without uh, being a retailer yep. myself is that they are probably uh, keeping their margins up at mm. this point. And so um, if people are buying and, uh, I mean, there's a lot of different tentacles to yep. retail where you take the you know stuff you can't sell and sell it to TJ Maxx or other discounters. And uh, and that may be happening as well. But uh, right now, we're not seeing some of those areas come down that you would think would. So it kind of tells the Fed they will. It's just mm. a question of when. OK, a mm -hmm. couple of questions on gas. Quick fire round. If yeah. gas is coming down, are people taking that money and spending to Alex's point? And the second thing, the signs that gas is now stabilizing. Gas was a big component today. It came down quite a lot, but it wasn't able to compensate for everything else. Yeah, gas is starting to level off. It, the, the decreases that we're seeing are smaller each uh, day, each week. And so, yeah, it's not. It, it's still probably going to weigh on CPI for September, but not contribute as much. As far as whether people are spending more, call me Thursday, because <laughs> that's Fair retail enough. sales. Yeah, okay. that's and we'll see, if, uh, we'll see if we have seen increases that take the place of service stations. That was, you said rapid fire. I was expecting like 20 more questions. Is it? There's two. That's enough. Okay, like, fair one, enough. Two. Well, they were put together. I didn't know there was multiple ones. All right, Mike, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Michael McKee, Bloomberg International Economics and yeah. Policy Correspondent. And to your point about gas, I mean, the rise to like 125 for Brent, I feel like would be very difficult to uh, do again yeah. in the next six months. The, the issue about discounting has got Alex genuinely scared. I, well, it's just she, frustrating, really. I mean, I'm waiting and you're getting like, here is 3% off. It's like, guys, this is not how I roll. Anyway, we're going to roll with banks next. This is Bloomberg.
This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening, listen to Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele here in New York. Guy Johnson over in London. Tis the time of year where we get updates on the third quarter revenue for the big banks. The latest is JP Morgan saying that investment banking fees may fall by half in the third quarter, because clients are really staying on the sidelines amid all this uncertainty around inflation. They do see trading revenue, though, by up by about 5% year on year. So who best to discuss this with? Shalai Basik from Bloomberg. Um, what are some of your takeaways from the preliminary reads right now? So why is it not surprising that investment banking fees are falling? Not only is M&A really stagnant, if you look at from the year-to-date volumes, they're down by more than a trillion dollars. Not to mention, in addition to that, you see all these deals unraveling. And when those deals that are announced that don't happen, don't happen, there's no fees (laughs) that get associated with them. The bankers don't get paid. Similarly, SPAC market, relatively non-existent. IPO market also very much coming to a screeching halt. A lot of underwriting has also, by hundreds of billions of dollars, decreased in volume since last year. So what they're saying about those investment banking fees being reduced, remember, JP Morgan, (laughs) they have it better than most other people. So Mm -hmm. they're saying that it's got to be rough elsewhere. But the good news, um, it's not going to be a 50% increase to offset that 50% decline. But you are going to see a potentially 5% increase in trading revenue that can help buffer that blow a little bit. What does it mean for jobs? Yeah, it's a tough time. So what you're hearing is a lot of these bankers say uh, at these conferences and telegraphing to their staff in memos or, or just on the sidelines that, listen, they've hired a lot over the last year or so. Yes, pay has gone up, but pay has mostly gone up at the lower levels when it comes to base. All that other pay is variable guy. So when you have variable pay, you just don't get paid as much. But they're not going to sit there and try to lay people off en masse Mm -hmm. because they're hoping that things start to come back in a year or two. They're hoping that they really what they're trying to do is that normal culling of Mm headcount. But again, what I have to hedge this by is if things do get worse into this year, if you take the Greg Jensen view of the world, right, that things can that we have not seen nearly the brunt of it, then things could change in terms of what those job cuts look like. How much of the if we just, for example, take the investment banking fees right down 50 percent potentially, how much of that is just recalibrating to some kind of normal world yeah. versus the last two years of craziness. And how much of it is like, no, no, there's some severe retrenchment here. The market is, has definitely changed. You know, it's funny because I hate macro. You all know that. But <laughs> the thing is, this she is likes where, it. I don't know what she's talking oh, about. Oh, you got to just pay attention to it. I know you do. But like the interest rate rises, uh, it's not just a big issue for the day-to-day moves in the market. It's an issue for anybody who's trying to do a deal because uh, it, they're not... Re- a, they're not rewarded as handsomely in the market. I think UBS is an interesting example of this. Mm-hmm. When they scrapped their deal, the stock rose a little bit. When they uh, announced that they would be doing a bigger dividend, their stock rose also. So that shows you that investors are sh- are rewarding a company for returning capital shareholder rather than investing through M&A in their business. Now, does that continue into a trend? It could stifle deal activity even more. Because in the last decade, we've saw M&A reach record heights on the heels of very, very low interest rates. And now that interest rates are rising, your borrowing costs rise too, and investor expectations of growth also change. Are people surprised that trading's holding up as well as it is? 
<laughs> yeah. Well, yes. Yeah. I mean, I'm. I. It's amazing, actually, because if you think about it, a few years ago, say like you know, taper tantrum era, people were very worried about the volatility because they called it gapping volatility, which is where your clients are essentially stifled. They don't engage. There was a lot of worries that this time around, especially with quantitative tightening, that liquidity would be nowhere to be found. Mm-hmm. But you are seeing both HFTs high-frequency traders, Citadel Securities, Jane Street, as well as the big banks really step up in markets and yeah. step up in really interesting markets. So, you know, if you think about Goldman and the nickel trade earlier this year, how fascinating. But what's also interesting is, even though you're seeing a lot of pain on the buy side, especially in the long-short equity world, you're seeing historic rises in macro funds, currencies trading, rates, commodities. See, macro is interesting. It's amazing. And, you know, even like Bridgewater, right? She said it. What? He was mocking you for not liking macro. macro. Oh, my goodness. I'm having the worst time of my life right now because it's all I'm talking to, the macro traders. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, Bridgewater, Pure Alpha is up like 27% this year to date. They were lagging on a historical basis in the last, like, you know, 16 or so years until this year. And this year turned them around. So this is the nice short in European equities now. Oh, yeah. And and he said, Jensen, just yesterday, basically said that, you know, being short is, you know, kind of a critical tool in the toolbox mm-hmm. right now. And again, like, depends on who you are and what you're what you're shorting, because there's a cost that comes to that, too. Um, You mentioned uh, UBS. I'm, have we started to get the same kind of uh, chatter around the European banks as we are with the U.S. banks? I think what happens with Credit Suisse is pretty critical because, you know, we saw Deutsche Bank had this huge turnaround. They were able to really jettison some critical businesses that they did better without. Uh, take Equities Prime Brokerage, for example. It helped them really focus in on other areas of trading that they now do really well on at their fixed income desk. Can Credit Suisse pull off that kind of surgical change and I think more importantly for the rest of Wall Street, where do those businesses go? I think it's not a complete direct correlation, but there is a response here where you're seeing J.P. Morgan get bigger, Goldman Sachs get bigger, and even Morgan Stanley get even bigger in trading as a firm like Credit Suisse pulls out of prime brokerage in the way that they have since Archegos. Is everybody back at their desks? Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Are they happy about such things? No, mm. absolutely not. But, you know, to the point that we're talking about jobs, there is that anxiety. There has to be. I got a text from somebody at Goldman yesterday with that hit that I did with you guys on television. Mm-hmm. And he said, like, everyone's anxious <laughs> at like a direct response. And they're like, Are we okay? And I'm like, I said on air that it's not going to be as bad as it's historically been. But the fact that job cuts are even coming back in any way mm-hmm. is a big signal to be working hard through the end of the year, even if it's a tough time. And like just in the last six months, like I feel like just not even like four months ago, the conversation was completely different and the leverage was very much towards the workers and burnouts and junior bankers and then whipsaw that puppy. Um, All right, Shanali, thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. Um, She gets excited like this when I talk about oil and like when you talk about planes. This is true. This is I, I can see. I can see. I don't think symmetry. anybody gets as excited as you when you talk about oil. What or, are you talking or about? Discounts. Narrow body, wide body, all the bodies. That's what you do. It's true. It's true. <laughs> you out. You out. Come on now. Okay. Okay. Uh, this is the cable. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the show. This is Bloomberg. This is the cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. You're listening to The Cable on Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. 
Guy Johnson is over in London. A truly brutal day unfolding the equity market here in the U.S. The Nasdaq's off by 4%. The S&P's off by over 3%. Um, you had a lot of money moving into the equity market in the last few days, really getting drained out at this point. All of the sectors are in the red. You also have a jumping, jump move higher here in the two-year yield, up at one point, like 17 basis points. The dollar uh, higher as well. And slowly, I got to say, Guy, there is a call. I think it's Nomura for 100 bips at the next meeting. So it's not like a crazy Ooh. conversation we, we starter were, anymore. We were much disparaged when we yeah, asked that we question. Were la- on we were laughed on television Almost when we asked fast. this question. Yeah. I, I get the point. It would be a big move. It would be an aggressive move. It would maybe signal that the Fed is, is a little worried that it's not getting a handle on this. I, I would have thought the more logical thing to do would be for the Fed to go 75 and then sound uber hawkish. Mm-hmm. At that press conference, which feels like the way to go, but the, the Fed will take the opportunity. The Fed is now locked in seventy-five with the market right behind it. The, the mark, well, the market's got there first. The Fed can now do what it wants on the seventy-five front. Right. If pricing was to move towards a hundred, it'd be really interesting to see what the Fed would do. And, and also, if seventy-five is baked in, and they need to also sound hawkish, they're going to have to do it. In in the presser, if it's not going to go to hundred bips, so just how much more hawkish they have to sound with that. Um, Okay, anyway, that's Snapshot for U.S. Headlines. Here is Charlie Pellet with some other headlines to pay attention to. Thank you very much, Alex Steele. Here's what's going on. The coffin of Queen Elizabeth was carried from an Edinburgh cathedral as the late monarch began a final journey from her beloved Scotland to London, where she will lie in state. Her son, King Charles, headed back to London from Northern Ireland, where his visit drew a rare moment of unity from politicians in a region with a contested British and Irish identity that is deeply divided over the monarchy. And over the past 24 hours, thousands of people filed silently past the coffin after it was brought to Edinburgh from the Queen's beloved Balmoral Estate, where she died last Thursday at age 96, ending her 70-year reign. Vladimir Putin has told bilateral meetings this week, uh, will hold bilateral meetings this week with leaders of China, India, Turkey, and Iran, as the Russian leader seeks to use a summit in Uzbekistan to counter his diplomatic isolation. Aldi has become Britain's fourth largest supermarket for the first time, overtaking William Morrison uh, supermarkets to gain 9.3% of the grocery market. Retail data company Kantar says the German discounter's market share climbed 1.2 percentage points in the 12 weeks to September 4th. Sainsbury, meanwhile, is going to invest $25 million in the cost of living support package for hourly paid workers to support them with rising household costs. It says it will use $20 million and a pay increase effective next month for hourly paid employees across retail, local fulfillment centers, and customer service contact centers. That is the latest from the news desk. Alex Steele, back to you now here in New York. All right, Charlie Pellet, thank you so very much. Uh, Guy, we can talk about inflation here all we want, but over there, it's all going to be about the price of gas. You can make any trade you want, but until we really have direction as to what the gas price will be and the stability, it's going to be hard to have real bets in the market. Uh, we're going to get UK CPI tomorrow, so it's going to be fascinating to see kind of where we are in this journey. Um, we're also tomorrow going to get a big speech from Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission. Part and parcel of this narrative uh, will be the state of the European Union, and it's fairly perilous at the moment. Uh, we find ourselves with an energy crisis, as you allude to. Uh, we are going to see likely a plan being unveiled, which will likely try and cap the energy costs that Europe and its consumers are going to face, potentially its businesses as well and try and get some demand destruction, let's call it that, a reduction 
uh, in the amount of energy that we are going to be or Europe is going to be using within the EU. Todd Gillespie joins us now uh, for an update from our energy team. Todd, we, we pretty much know everything. What do we know? What are we still waiting for in terms of what the Europeans are going to do? How are they going to respond? Yeah, so there's there's some key pillars, really. Uh, I mean, the main thing that people are talking about today is this new uh, new details have sort of come out about this power uh, consumption curve that could be chased. So there's potential for a 5% mandatory cut uh, on power use during peak times and then a, a 10% sort of total sort of voluntary aim uh to to sort of cut this level of, of use across the across the block um and obviously the the plans about capping revenue for power producers um are also seem to be going ahead there have been some further details reported by bloomberg today on a or sorry i sorry i think late yesterday on 180 to 200 megawatt um to 200 euro per megawatt hour cap um which seems to be what the what the european commission is is aiming for um but really i mean the the, the demand destruction element here seems to be you know, making some ways through markets. Um, you've you've got prices that are staying fairly compressed this week relative to where they have been, um, and people are looking more and more optimistic. J.P. Morgan with a quite an optimistic note out this morning about gas storage levels at the end of winter, saying they could be thirty four percent full by the end of March, which is like a key, mm-hmm. th- yep. which is loads, right, relative to where people thought we would be a few months ago. Hey, Todd, how do you enforce cuts, like demand cuts, on a on a business level and a consumer level? Do we know how they do that? Yeah, I mean, it really will depend. So a lot of the uh, freedom, I think, might be left up to national governments to do this. So a lot of this is going to be a piecemeal approach. That feels totally easy. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And I think, I mean, I've spoken to some analysts who say you're going to have some countries who are going to go even further than they need to, who should be paid for that, while some countries are going to be lazier. So you could even have this situation where, you know, um, you know, either increased production of gas, or for instance, in a similar case, or or you could have, you know, people in Norway being more dutiful, or sorry, people in, you know, people in certain countries um, across Europe uh, being more dutiful about switching off their uh, of their um, power demand, um, actually helping ease blackouts and easing demand and easing gas uh, yeah. for the rest of Europe. You would have thought Norway quite chilly. They would they would want to maybe keep things going. Um, okay. The UK. Let's talk a bit about where we are with that. Um, we're still waiting for the details of the costings around the energy plan that's been announced by the the trust government. We also don't know a lot about the business package. Yeah, I mean we've 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 been obviously trust has already announced this. Uh, well, it's been costed 130 billion pounds for consumers, for households. Um, the government itself hasn't announced any costings of the plan, which has actually really incensed some uh, some economists in this country because it's possibly the largest fiscal fiscal package that you know we've seen for 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 one off uh, deal like that in a long long time. Um, but yeah, for businesses who are really struggling to get through the winter, I mean, everyone's very worried about inflation. Everyone's worried, very worried about unemployment if some of these businesses go under because of uh, because of their high energy costs. But we've actually had very little clarity on what the government could do to step in. There's, you know, they've, the government has said there's going to be six months of support for all businesses of some kind. Um, you know, Bloomberg's uh, reported that the government has. Uh, considered discounting uh, existing tariffs and also freezing prices, having a fixed price. Mm-hmm. Um, but you run into a lot of complications when you do this on a business level because you have huge industrial and commercial com- customers who have very complex contracts. Um, a lot of, you know, with a pen- potentially for a lot of loopholes, potential for some abuse, potential for people falling through the cracks. And what happens after the six months? You know, you, these, these, you know, the hedge prices that a lot of these suppliers um 
and we're able to lock in are still far, far elevated to what a lot of these companies can afford. So, you know, your little, you know, your pubs, your high street chains, um, especially in hospitality, where th- margins are very thin anyway, you're going to see a lot of, uh, you know, economic impact last beyond those six yeah. months too. I figure the more people you put into a pub, the warmer it's going to be. <laughs> yeah. So, so maybe that's maybe yeah, that's, let's be convivial. That, this how many Christmas. Brits can you fit into a pub? Well, I think I think <laughs> it's the way to rescue the pub industry. I was trying to talk to my friends about this the other day. Yeah. I think basically we all need to spend more time in the pub, yeah. so that the pubs are warmer. We are all going to keep it warm yeah. if we put lots um, of us in there. We'll save our on our home heating but bills guy, as well. Precisely, <laughs> guy. This means that you you be really close to people. Like they'll touch you and. Okay, I, we've got to move beyond. In this scenario, <laughs> we have to move hugging. beyond the COVID thing. I, that, that it's going to be a trade-off. It, it's going to be a difficult trade-off, but at least my way involves beer. So I'm just just flagging it as an option. It's fair, it's fair. Save the pubs by by going to the pubs. Uh, Todd, thank you very much indeed. Todd Gillespie on the Energy Story. This is Bloomberg. This is the Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Listen to the Cable, Bloomberg DAB Digital Radio. I'm Alex Steele in New York. Guy Johnson is over in London. Let's get down to these markets here, um, just to focus on the U.S. because that's where the selling is most extreme. The Nasdaq off by 3.8 percent. Let's get some more insight here uh, with Jess Menton. She joins us, Bloomberg's equities reporter. Jess, how much of this is a true reaction to the data? How much of this is like, oh my God, 12 hours ago, positioning was so different? It has to do a lot, like you're saying, when it comes to positioning, and especially what we're seeing with what's happening with bond yields, because when you see such a quick and sharp move like this, similar to what we saw in the middle of August, and especially once Chairman Jerome Powell from the Fed was speaking over at Jackson Hole towards late August, when we see those big moves in there, that's obviously going to affect, especially when you're looking at growth and technology stocks. If you're just looking at a breakdown of the S&P 500 a day, not surprisingly, it's consumer discretionary, it's technology, communication services that are leading those declines. And then more of those defensive sectors they're obviously down as well if you're looking at obviously staples, healthcare, utilities, but it's just not quite as down as much. Those sectors down about 1% when you're looking at more of those growth oriented sectors in the S&P 500 down around 4% each. So it's a big difference there when you're looking at that kind of pain trade. We need to put this in context. We are still up over five days on the S&P. We are basically at the same level we were three days ago. So coming into Friday morning, Compared to where we were on Friday morning, we are down by half of 1%. This has been a big move into this number. It has. And the S&P, like you were just mentioning, it just came off of its best four-day rally since early July. And then looking at today's movements, the S&P 500 unfortunately broke below its 50-day moving average and 100-day moving average, but it's still trading above 3,900, which tends to be this sort of line in the sand right now, as far as when I'm talking to analysts and strategists, as far as what this could mean for a potential bear market rally, or if the rally we saw over the summer could still have legs. So even though, like you're talking about, Guy, that we've seen these declines today, we're still not below that threshold just yet. And obviously still up from those June lows of uh, 36.66 was the closing low on June 16th. So still quite a bit above that. But again, kind of reinvigorating those expectations of what exactly is this going to mean? Clearly, 75 basis points is baked in to at least that for Mm -hmm. that Fed meeting next week. But especially, it's not even just the Fed that has a decision next week. We also have the Bank of England, you have the Bank of Japan, and a number of other smaller central banks more globally, which clearly they're dealing with inflation issues as well. Okay, so why is the VIX at 25? And that is one of the things that has remained to be a head scratcher for a lot of. Are we just hedging differently? Is there just different kinds of 
dealing with this? Because when you're looking at equity put call ratios or if you're looking at the VIX, typically when you look at whenever there have been prior periods of market bottoms, historically, you would see the VIX at least above 40. And that has continued to be an issue. So even though it's slightly more elevated than it has been at earlier points in this year, I mean, in March, the highest it got was about 36. So mm. still even below that level then. So a lot of when I'm talking to volatility traders, they still don't are basically not convinced that we've actually seen the low because they think we still need to see that VIX there. So even though it's more elevated than it has been in prior times this summer, it's still pretty low right now. And so that's been continued to be a head scratcher for a lot of traders because they think it needs to be actually a lot higher than 25. What impact is like, we're back we're back to the race off to the races again with the dollar. How is that factoring in? That's been a big issue for the broader equity markets this year, and especially just the tear that the dollar has been on, trading around these records, and especially when it comes to these more large-cap multinational companies that obviously have more exposure and derive their revenues, a big part of that overseas, especially when it comes to these technology companies. But when you're looking more domestically-focused small-cap stocks, they obviously are more impacted when it comes to higher rates, because they typically carry on more debt than their larger counterparts. Counterparts, but we have seen some glimmers of hope when it comes to the small cap indexes. Like today, the Russell 2000 is down about 3%, which kind of matches around where the S&P 500 is trading, but still not quite as down when you're looking at the NASDAQ 100 or some of these growth um, stocks. And so a lot of traders look to small caps to see, are we seeing any sort of signs of bottoming? Because mm-hmm. even though the Russell 2000 had peaked back in November of last year, a lot of those stocks had already been selling off in the beginning of 2021. So it's been well over a year and a half that they've been on this steady decline. So that's actually a key focus that I think investors should keep their eyes on. Jess, thanks a lot. We really appreciate it. Jess Menton joining us, uh, Bloomberg's equity reporter. Really good stuff, as always. Uh, thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to go to Ed Ludlow. He's outside a courthouse, the co-founder of Nikola, uh, facing steep accusations about basically fraud. We're going to get an update there from him. This is Bloomberg. This is The Cable with Guy Johnson and Alex Steele on Bloomberg Radio. Good evening. Welcome. You're listening to The Cable. Uh, we are live on DAB Digital Radio. So there's a bunch of things happening in the uh, the tech world today that we're going to talk to Ed Ludlow about now. Um, he is outside a New York court. Uh, we've got the Nikola trial. Nikola was this truck company that was going to be the kind of the new Tesla. Um, but it all kind of went pear-shaped. It was one of the first SPACs. Uh, its boss is now front and center uh, in terms of a, a, a fraud trial, basically, uh, in New York. We've also got this ongoing story around Twitter as well uh, and what is happening there. We've got testimony uh, being given by the former chief security officer of Twitter that Elon Musk is going to be paying attention to. There's other things happening as well. We've got a Peloton story developing. Uh, the the, uh, the founders are out there. So there's a lot a lot of things happening, and Ed Ludlow is the guy to talk to about all of it. He's outside the court today, so we should start with the Nicola story and what is happening there. Ed, explain this case and why it's so important. Yeah, so Trevor Milton is the, the founder and former executive chair of Nicola, and he is charged with two counts of securities fraud, two counts of wire fraud. But essentially, what the prosecution will have to prove, and the burden of proof is with the prosecution, is that he lied to him about the company's progress on its technology, its business progress, and going further than that, that it was those statements, whether they're misstatements or lies, that induced investors or motivated investors 
to buy the stock. This is a company that was kind of the first of this massive wave of EV companies that went public via special purpose acquisition company in 2020 through 2021. And it's, it's at its height, as you guys know, it had a market cap greater than Ford, despite having zero revenue and never actually done any manufacturing of vehicles. So that, that is what it, is happening here. You know, that we're on day two of this trial, jury selection was Monday. Both sides have given opening arguments, and now we're starting to hear from our first witness. What, what's going to be the fallout for this? Have we already seen the fallout? Is it, or, or is there going to be a deeper fallout within the industry? Well, it's interesting. I mean, for Trevor Milton, remember, it's Trevor Milton that's on trial here, not Nikola. Nikola reached a civil settlement with the SEC uh, for $125 million, which they started paying at the beginning of this year. Um, For Milton, you know, the most serious of those charges uh, put to him faces, he faces 25 years of prison time. You know, it's a criminal case. Um, You know, there's two schools of thought, really, you know, uh, there was a feeling that when he was indicted in 2021, we might see this kind of wave of action from regulators targeting companies that have gone public via SPAC. That never really materialized. But there are similarities, of course, between this case and that of Elizabeth Holmes, you know, of Theranos. That was a private company, of course. In this case, the, what's at issue is whether, you know, investors took the decision to buy the stock based on things that Milton said and whether those things were, were lies, they were misrepresentations. So, you know, there's a cautionary tale in it, but as for sort of some wider repercussion for publicly traded companies, especially those that went public via SPAC, it's not so clear. Another case that we're watching very carefully, obviously, is what is happening with Twitter and the case around whether or not Elon Musk will be forced to purchase it. Today, we have the former chief security officer giving testimony to the U.S. Senate. How important is what we've been hearing there? Well, it's bizarre because I'm looking on the Bloomberg at Twitter shares. We're up seven-tenths of one percent, right? And this is on a day where we're seeing tech stocks in particular get absolutely hammered. Twitter subject to acquisition by Elon Musk because it's traded in a funny way. But there's a school of thought that so much of the hearing focused on issues of privacy and cybersecurity and not so much on the prevalence of bots on the Twitter platform. Mm. And you remember that when... Zapko made his whistleblower filing. You know, he he did claim that bots were were to a higher degree on the platform than, than management had previously stated. Twitter's lawyers, not for the sake of this hearing, but in conjunction to the case with Musk in Delaware in October, made the argument that bots were outside of Zapko's remit. Right, he was in charge of security. Um, and so there seems to be a bit of a sigh relief from the market. I think the big theme or takeaway from the hearing is that. Twitter, like has been put or accused of companies like Facebook, for example, was more focused on its profit than it was on addressing um, data privacy and and security vulnerabilities on the platform itself. So does that mean that this isn't really going to help Musk at all? Or can he kind of change the narrative or use it in his own narrative? It's interesting because we already know that Musk can use partially um, some of what was included in the whistleblower filing as evidence. You know, uh, Judge St. Jude McCormick, of uh, Chancery overseeing the, the case in Delaware on October 17th, already gave that, that permission to, to Musk's team. Um, there wasn't so much of that in today's hearing. We didn't find out anything really new on the, the bot side of the story that we didn't already know anyway. So, you know, of course, it's a court of law. Uh, it's, you know, it, it's not... Uh, one would assume that the judge wouldn't, you know, take anything into account other than what she's already ruled. 
Let's talk about Peloton briefly. A couple of minutes sure. left. Um, founders out. What does this mean for the company? The reaction I read earlier on Wall Street seemed to be that this makes a takeover of this company less likely. Yeah. I, I mean, the after-hours market reaction Monday night is very different to the stock, which is now down 11% on Tuesday's session, right? But the feeling from from industry analysts on the sell side was it's a positive because you're you're basically getting rid of the baggage, um, for want of a better expression. You know, Foley is gone, along with one of the other co-founders who was chief legal officer. And with that, it gives Barry McCarthy, who's the current CEO, former Spotify executive, the opportunity to fully exact his plan, which is to reduce costs dramatically, shift from hardware to software, and really improve free cash flow. And, and analysts went straight to that free cash flow issue. And as you and I talk about often, Guy, um, When's somebody going to buy this company? Mm -hmm. I have to wonder, too, can they make these changes fast enough? Well, they, they've been through multiple waves of, of headcount reduction. Yeah. You know, that has happened. They've pivoted to third parties on the delivery and installing. That's happened. Um, it's the same question I have. It's hard to understand how the departure of a founder can materialize in a way that further reduces uh, spend. Um, but that, that is at least what the street's pointing to. Ed, great stuff. Thank you very much indeed. We'll look forward to the ongoing uh, coverage of all of this. The Nikola trial certainly fascinating uh, in the way that it's going to develop. Uh, quick update on the markets. NASDAQ down by 3.83%. The S&P down by, let's call it 3% right now. A tough reaction to a very hot inflation print out of the States. CPI out of the UK tomorrow. We'll have some great coverage of that tomorrow. This was The Cable. This is Bloomberg. <laughs>